Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. He sipped as a weak hock and seltzer as he gazed at the London skies. Through the Nottingham lace of the curtains, or was it his bees-winged eyes? John Betjeman, the arrest of Oscar Wilde at the Cadogan Hotel. So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there. It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell. I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Warnerman Walrus. They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? Knuckled. Got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that? A little bit pathetic. <laughs> So we're in the parlour of Dr Johnson's house. One sees a story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless. Yeah, they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush. Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon? Listen, you're all idiots. You don't want to start culture or anything. No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff. You engage with other people. You link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What, what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible. London life is a really rich experience, and there's a lot that's good about living here. Boris Johnson. He weighs as much as 40 school children. What a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Monday, August 27th, 2012. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can, as always, download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. I've got an interview, the like of which you are not going to hear elsewhere for you today. It's an extended interview in our summer series. I'm going to be speaking to Murray Craig, who is the clerk of the Chamberlain's Court at Guildhall. Well, what does he do, I hear you ask? I I can only advise that you listen to the interview. The answer is a long and complicated one, but I hope very interesting and absolutely unique. And we are sponsored once again this week by riverford.co.uk and they are, as you may well remember, a deliverer of vegetables. Yes, if you want a box of uh, broccoli and spuds and carrots and other delicious things brought to you and indeed meat and uh, fruit as well, then Riverford is the company for you and we've teamed up with them to offer you some free food. All you need to do is go to riverford.co.uk forward slash Londonist and you'll get a half price vegetable box. Delivery is free on all of this stuff. It's free seasonal organic veg, fruit and meat delivered to you for half price thanks to Riverford and Londonist. So what's been going on in the capital in the last week? Well, quite a bit, even though it's uh, summer and and therefore silly season, I guess things are starting to switch back now to a slightly more work-like pace. And indeed, Boris has climbed down from his zip wire and has started to come up with some schemes, of course, being that it's Boris, they are transport-related. And the latest wheeze is one for the cyclists. 
what he's come up with basically is an idea of setting down trackside, as in rail trackside, cycle paths. So these are going to be dedicated to two-wheeled transport and thereby avoid all of the uh, deadly HGVs, red lights and so forth in the capital's general traffic flow. A fairly complicated sort of arrangement to set up. Londonist riders have, of course, done a little bit of investigation of their own, and it only took a, a trip or two on the train looking out the window to spot some of the problems. Bridges, for one, a Clapham Junction for another, where, of course, to have a trackside cycle path would mean having to get rid of some of the other tracks. Will it work? Not entirely sure. Of course, Boris has also been a proponent of elevated cycleways. So uh, all of this seems to boil down to a lot of brainstorming and uh, uh, clearly an intent to make sure that those people who do want to cycle in the town and thereby perhaps relieve some of the congestion, particularly around rush hours, uh, should have a, a safe way to get from A to B. The debate is most definitely underway in the Londonist article about it this week. If you take a look at how would Boris's railway cycle paths work, check out that article and you'll find quite a few comments there already, some in support, others objecting and others simply, I think, seeing this as the beginning of a conversation that needs to happen. Now, another conversation that's long overdue is, of course, about affordable rent in the capital. And uh, London Assembly member Darren Johnson wants your help in coming up with a definition of an affordable rent. You may remember before the election, London citizens got Boris Johnson to agree to work with them and with local authorities to decide what an affordable rent should be. And this is the important distinction. It's based on income, not on market rates. Well, so far there hasn't been much action from the mayor's office. We already know that at least one pre-election pledge on housing didn't manage to come to Boris's attention. So Darren has decided to move matters along and he publishes a handy and slightly terrifying uh, tool that lets you work out which boroughs you can actually afford to rent in. The mayor and government currently define affordable as 35% of your take-home pay and Darren wants your ideas on how to make that definition better as well as things City Hall can do to make London affordable for us all to live in and there's uh, of course a feedback form there as well so you can submit uh, more general comments and the place to take a look at for that is londonrents.org.uk well, still on the subject of buildings, but not uh, not homes uh, this time. As you may be aware, every year there's an open house weekend. It's happening in September this year, and it's got increasingly popular as more and more people have become aware of it. So much so that this September's open house weekend has uh, already encountered some fairly massive technical problems in terms of the booking system. It's crashed under high traffic uh, at least twice. It experienced so much demand last Thursday it couldn't cope. Bookings were suspended and uh, they, they tried to start it up again the next day but that didn't happen either and consequently there's been a lot of upgrading and testing going on there. Now you might be interested to know that Open City which runs the weekend is in fact a charity and despite the fact that they're putting pressure on their internet provider of course there's only so much they can do so a, a little understanding is of course very useful for them you can keep an eye on their progress via their website or twitter you can sign up for their newsletter if you want to find out when online booking will reopen um, a few hints here the gherkin cannot be pre-booked uh, so there's no point piling onto the website to try to to get that one that's just a case of queuing other popular spots that are available via email ballot only are Heron Tower, Tower 42, 
the Lower Lee and ICE Saturday and Sunday boat tours. So if it's on water or up high, uh, you're going to have to take your chances with everyone else. Uh, quite a useful resource here as well, Ian Visits. Ian Visits, of course, is a, a blog that's very popular and does very much what it says on the tin in relation to London. He has uh, a list going on of details of buildings that you won't be able to book via the Open House website, and hopefully that will help uh, reduce a little bit of traffic for them and get a few extra hits for him so do take a look on there before you go to the open house weekend website which of course is openhouselondon.org.uk well here's a new story i'm glad to read uh, new wheelchair advice has been given to bus drivers you may remember a few weeks ago we were covering the story of one particular would-be uh, user of london buses who is a wheelchair user his name is ray belisario and ray of course was told 28 times that he was not going to be able to board various buses he was sworn at he was assaulted the most graphic image from his story for me was that he had his uh, legs in the doors of a bus which had uh, tried to drive off without him and the the driver was there kicking his legs out from the doors of the bus quite disgusting uh, there's also been stories uh, muscular dystrophy sufferer ollie knocker says he is late for work twice a week because drivers won't let him get on board with his mobility scooter jonathan byrne meanwhile had to pay 73 pounds for new train tickets after a driver prioritized an empty pram over him and, and he consequently missed the connection home well TFL have reminded their drivers and uh, it's long overdue that the wheelchair space on buses is for wheelchairs. Yeah, not buggies. And uh, buggies, of course, should be folded if a wheelchair user needs to board, nor are those spaces for people standing or for luggage. And they've issued an illustrated guide to permitted chairs and scooters, which complements a mobility card that's been issued to disabled people earlier in the year. Now, that's all well and good. And of course, it is good and not before time but i think the onus falls on us as well yes of course there's a professional responsibility for the driver to ensure that he is handling his customers in the appropriate way but uh, well I, th- I think it comes down to all of us as bus users to uh, stick up for the rights of every passenger you wouldn't leave a a pregnant woman standing there if she wanted a seat well similarly if uh, the bus driver is being less than helpful I think it's beholden on all of us to, uh, well, put our two panneth in. There's a comment as well from someone who wants to do just that. Bernard says, do you or any readers have a copy of the mobility card that you can share? I'm happy to wade in, he says, when it, it comes to this sort of thing, but I'd like to feel a little better informed. So, yeah, please do uh, go onto the Londonist.com story there. If you are disabled and you're able to share what that mobility card looks like and which sort of scooters, etc., are allowed on the bus, that would be uh, welcome information. Well, the team here has been spending the last few weeks booking the guests for the new series. We've got some fantastic ones. I'm sure you're going to want to hear their views and their insights into their work. We've, amongst other things, got a beef eater, a lifeboatman, a professional sceptic, and a historian of prisons, among many, many others. Do stay tuned in future weeks to Londonist Out Loud, and of course, do check out londonist.com for all the news stories that we discuss on this show. Before we hear from Murray Craig, there's just time for this week's historical quiz. Are you ready? And of course, answers will come after the interview at the end of the show. 
So, the last week in London, 20th of August, 1989. The Marchioness disaster took place on the Thames, resulting in 51 deaths. Under which bridge did that happen? Tuesday, the 21st of August, 1920. A boy was born in Chelsea, West London. His father, the author A.A. A. Milne, would use him as inspiration for a character in the Winnie the Pooh stories. What was the boy's name? Huh. Wednesday, 22nd of August, 1964. Which iconic football programme was screened for the first time, covering uh, on its first day a 3-2 defeat of Arsenal by Liverpool? There can surely be only one, right? Thursday, the 23rd of August, 1940. The first what takes place in London? And a lot of stuff happening for the first time there, of course. Clue, it happens at night. Or in this case, it happened at night. Finally, Friday, the 24th of August, 1931. At Westminster, Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald submitted the formal resignation of the Labour government. What was the Labour government replaced by? OK, you've got about 40 minutes to see what you can do with those. Incidentally, if you are interested in uh, puzzles and memory, uh, you might be interested in the Londonist article Nifty Mnemonics, which is... Uh, <laughs> well, there's some good stuff here. There's no answers, though, to the, the quizzes they set there. Uh, but it's a bunch of mnemonics that help you to remember certain sequences around town. Um, just type in Nifty Mnemonics into Londonist.com and uh, you'll see what I mean there. There's a certain irony there, isn't there, uh, given that mnemonics, which is, of course, all about using first letters to help you remember stuff, uh, the word mnemonics itself has uh, an almost silent first letter. Well, let me introduce you now to a man who has no memory problems whatsoever. He has plenty to say about his role and indeed about the history of the City of London and the many organisations existing within it. Well, here I am. At Guildhall, and the room I'm in, which I believe is in the north wing, I guess you would think of a courtroom, something like an American courtroom drama feel to it. It's about as close as I can get. At one end of the room, there's a, a very large lectern, a winged lectern. There's a crest on the wall. There's a list of chamberlains of London on both sides of the wall behind it, which sort of gives away where we are. I am with the clerk of the Chamberlain's Court, Murray Craig, today. Hello. Hello. And we're here really to dig into your role, which as niche careers go, it is very, very, very special indeed. How many people are there doing anything like what you're doing? <laughs> I, I hesitate to answer. I, I, I know that I'm the, only the 37th clerk of the Chamberlain's Court since uh, 1294. And to be honest, I, I don't think the freedom... I think freedom is dispensed in other towns and cities about the country, but they tend to do it, uh, I think, perhaps annually or biannually, something like that. Whereas here, it's a daily occurrence for us in the City of London. OK, so we need to define our terms, first of all, I suppose. So the giving of freedom is the first thing, I guess, to unpack a little bit for those who are unfamiliar with it. And obviously, we could go straight into the, the sort of the cliched understanding that people have of what the, the freedom of the City of London means. Sure. Um, well, it's a very ancient custom, a, a tradition that we're very proud of at the Guildhall and keen to maintain as a living tradition. Uh, its origins actually stretch back to the early part of the 
13th century. And the freedom, in fact, was uh, a working document. It was the right to trade. It would enable you to carry out your trade or your craft as a member of one of these livery companies or guilds of the City of London, trade associations of a craft banded together to look after the interests of their members. That's essentially what a livery company is. Nothing to do with horses. Um, to carry out your trade or craft, you had to have a bit of parchment, a bit of paper, uh, which is the freedom. And this would uh, give you, uh, it was very lucrative. It would give you monopolistic trading rights in the richest part of the kingdom, the City of London, which all sounds marvellous, but there were two catches. Uh, one, the fee, and historically the fee was quite high proportionally in comparison with the rather modest sum that's charged today, which I hasten to add doesn't swell the coffers of the corporation anymore, but goes to the Freeman's School at Ashstead in Surrey for the foundation scholarships. And then secondly, the guilds uh, would undertake to maintain standards of excellence and quality in the goods produced and the services provided. So bakers wouldn't give you stale bread and vintners wouldn't give you sour wine, butchers wouldn't give you rotten meat. In essence, therefore, the freedom was a sort of a medieval type of uh, quality control or trading standards and this lasted for centuries until the victorians came along and of course they didn't like monopolies and cartels they liked free trade laissez-faire so the requirement that you be a member of a guild or a livery to obtain the freedom was lifted in 1835 and the freedom uh, was enlarged or expanded upon to enable anybody living or working in the city to uh, get the freedom so since 1835 we've had the two strands of freedom uh, the one via a livery company and the one by nomination and freedom now then means what in practical terms when i arrived here you were just at the tail end of a, a ceremony and i can see that it's an honor but in practical terms is it possible to use the freedom for something uh, t- to be honest it, it's largely symbolic today ever since um, the the rules were changed as i mentioned the victorian era um, it's, it remains a unique slice of London history, a, a very potent symbol of London history. And, and strictly speaking, it isn't an honour. Some people perceive it to be an honour, but it's more, I would say, a slice of London history. They, they get their piece of parchment, a book called The Rules for the Conduct of Life, which was written by a former Lord Mayor in the 18th century for the benefit of his wayward young apprentices. And uh, there is a, a, a what I would hope is a, a very interesting... People seem to go and tell me they find it a very interesting ceremony, telling them about the history and traditions and also showing them about some other uh, interesting freemen who have been around, more historical ones. We have, uh, for example, a letter from Nelson. We have a, a, a freedom casket, which was given by Florence Nightingale. Uh, we have a, a very nice picture of William Pitt receiving the freedom. But in essence, it's... it's um, the practical aspects of it, it's still very important for the London livery companies. Now, there are 108 of those, and they're still growing. They, 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 they began as uh, medieval trade guilds, and you have mercers and haberdashers and skinners and grocers and merchant tailors. Amazingly, the livery movement is still expanding today, and we have all the more modern professions instead of the old trades and crafts. So we have solicitors, chartered surveyors, uh, actuaries, insurers, and so on. Now, to rise within the hierarchy of the company, from being a freeman of the company to becoming a liveryman, and then perhaps on the court of assistants, the governing body, wardens, and then the pinnacle of most livery companies being the master or the uh, uh, upper, the upper bailiff. Uh, or the prime warden um, you still have to get the city freedom um, to enable you to take the livery so it's a very important part uh, for them 
Other people come to us for a variety of reasons, uh, because they either live or work in the city for many years, they have an attachment with it, they're a member of a ward club, uh, or maybe they work at Bart's Hospital, maybe their grandfather was a freeman, or maybe they just love London and are interested in the history of it. So this is a, I'm beginning to understand it, I think this is a professional gateway in in some respects, as well as an honour, and I think when I said an honour, I think I meant with a small h, a, a sort of a, a recognition. You, you, yes, you're, you're right. Sometimes there is a, a, a misunderstanding between an honour with a small h, you've put it very well, and an honour with a big h. I mean, we do have the honorary freedom of the City of London, and have had that since the uh, 18th century, and that is what most people would understand by the honorary freedom of a city, uh, the highest accolade that the city can bestow on an individual citizen. Uh, for example, I think Manchester gave the freedom of the City of London to Sir Alex Ferguson when he won the European Cup for Manchester United and so on. Other, other various worthies are given the freedom of the city. And we have that in the corporation, in the City of London, in the square mile. But they tend to be national figures rather than local figures. So uh, I alluded to it earlier. Nelson, Wellington, Pitt the Younger, Kitchener of Cartoon, Baden-Powell, David Livingston, Florence Nightingale, Winston Churchill, uh, Margaret Thatcher's uh, hanging on the wall over there. A, a real, uh, all the great and the good, a real historical luminaries receiving the freedom. And, and that is an honour. They get a splendid illuminated manuscript together with perhaps a maybe a gold box, uh, or if they're a military gentleman, they might get a gold sword studded with diamonds, or they might have their portrait painted and be hanging in the Guildhall Art Gallery. Churchill famously didn't get a gold box, but he got a wooden box which was made from some of the timbers salvaged from the Great Guildhall roof, which sadly was largely destroyed by incendiary bombs in 1940, but it was a very symbolic uh, wooden casket. Florence Nightingale uh, famously said, I don't want a gold box, she said. That is far too ostentatious for a lady of my great age. Will you instead send a cheque for a 100 guineas, the cost of the box, to my nursing charity at St Thomas's, and just give me a plain and simple wooden box? Now, I wish we were on television rather than uh, a radio now, because we're looking at the plain and simple box, and as you can see, it's anything but. It's a, a massive oak casket it's uh, surmounted by the uh, a bronzed angel of mercy we have a lion's heads columns soldiers uh, we have the motto of the corporation domini de rige nos uh, incoman sebastable crimea and florence's initials fn in enamel on it, it to describe it as plain and simple is uh, is, is, is uh, rather amusing it is a splendid artifact of freedom which we're very grateful to the florence nightingale museum at st thomas's hospital who have loaned it to us one has to wonder what their idea of immodest would uh, would be. I must confess that the livery companies are somewhat enigmatic to me. I was looking at the, the charts of all the different livery companies, interested to see that alongside some of the predictable ones, there's also makers of playing cards and fan makers. Are they... Well... I'm going to come back to those, actually, because what I wanted to just get my head around was the, the concept of a livery company. So if I, let's say I'm a solicitor to pick one of the ones that you mentioned earlier. If I wanted to set up practice in the square mile, do I become part of a livery company? Does my company become a livery company? How, how does it work? I, I think they're, the modern ones are more sort of uh, add-ons or adjuncts to existing professional body like the Law Society or the Chartered Institute of Surveyors. Uh, they are set very much separate entities um, and essentially the modern ones are mirroring the more medieval ones um, in their... And the, the livery companies 
medievally would 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 control the trade would uh, control prices uh, quality standards would bring young people into the companies through uh, what was called servitude um, they would also have this very important role of, of charity um, uh, there are many companies have arms houses for old and decayed members of the company uh, many are associated with education and schools for example you have the merchant tailors school you have the haberdashers school you have the cooper's school and even one that's as plain as the nose on your face but equally you have ones like st paul's which is associated with the mercer's company uh, but they have just interestingly opened one of these new academies in, in hammersmith in conjunction with one of the newer companies the worshipful company of information technologies so it's a mixture of the very old the mercers and the new white hot heat of technology blending together and establishing uh, a new school um just to, to interject i think i've just made a realization tell me if i'm wrong here when we say company we're not talking about an incorporated a firm for want of a better word are we we're talking about a group of people uh, uh, yes i'm sorry i i'm I, the, the terms are sort of partly interchangeable i'm banding around guild uh company livery um the, the full title is a, a a livery company and and you're quite right there 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 it's not a, a formal company in the sense of it but um uh, more like a guild. If you like. I'm not very good on my legal terms, I'm afraid. But 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 uh, th- that is the, the the essence of it. Yes, it's it's not a. They, they're not responsible to their shareholders, shall we put it that way? So, so presumably, the guild of uh, I'm going to pick solicitors again because it's fresh in my mind. They could have members in various different firms. Exactly that. Yeah. Um, the company, the delivery companies started off as, say, Mercer's, Haberdashers, Merchant Taylor's, Skinner's, but have evolved through patrimony. These are, there are two other very important aspects to freedom, patrimony and servitude. And it all goes back to the medieval origins. Where I, sometimes I feel I should be living in the Middle Ages. The father, it's natural for the, fa- the son to follow in the father's, what he did. So if he was a cooper or a tin plate worker, the son would follow in that profession. Now, if he was born after the father had got the freedom, as a special privilege, therefore, his the son would be able to take the freedom of the city on reaching the age of 21, and therefore he would then, i.e. the right to trade, and the idea is the father would gradually slow down, the son might take on the business, so it was self-perpetuating, it just went on, and then he might pass it on to his son. And then that was supplemented by a system of what was called servitude. Uh, this is apprenticeship. Uh, it's very topical at the moment, isn't it, in, 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 in modern society. People are saying we should have apprentices and city and guilds rather than everyone going to university. And it worked very well. Uh, a, a 14-year-old would be taken on by a master. The father would pay for board, lodging and apparel. The master would pass on the skills and the mysteries of the ancient craft of being a, a glazier a tin plate worker or whatever and then after seven years he'd serve his term uh, he would make him uh, he would make a masterpiece he'd give his master a piece of stained glass if he was a glazier or a, um, a gold ring if he was a goldsmith and then if that was of good quality and, and the highest standard of workmanship he would that would be it and he would get his freedom by servitude and that would enable him to carry out a trade he might branch off on his own or he might work with a master and ultimately the business might go to him so this went on for as i say for centuries you know handed down so these two aspects of freedom are still uh, very important now going back to the modern livery companies um they tend to be if you're a solicitor an architect an actuary by definition you must be a qualified solicitor, architect, or actually to be a member of the company. Now, the other companies, as I've alluded, have been um, 
diluted heavily by patrimony. They might have started off as being a grocer in the 15th century, but now they might be a merchant banker or an accountant or whatever. Um, some of the companies are still, or the livery companies rather, are still very connected with their original trade. So, for example, the goldsmiths, many are goldsmiths, um, diamond mounters, silversmiths, and you still have at the hall, you have the expression hallmark. You, you know this, you, you go to the hall for your mark. The hall is the goldsmiths hall. The mark is of the London Assay office, and the mark is actually of quality uh, and the right amount of uh, um, what's the word, carrots in, 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 in the gold ring, and the mark is the leopard's head, which is the mark of the goldsmith's company. The London Assay Office is still there. The fishmongers still employ fish meters, uh, and they are inspection officers. who so in, uh, They, they uh, inspect the catch at Billingsgate Fish Market. The farriers run the farriers' registration council, so to become a qualified farrier, you need to pass the examinations by the farriers' registration council, and that's still run by the washful company of farriers. So some are, and the for example the stationers the butchers they are very trade orientated members of the company must have some connection with publishing printing newspapers books it might be digital learning but it's it's all within that and the butchers likewise they're very in the meat industry this is very interesting this blending of the sort of professional and the social and you say in some of the companies it's not necessarily the case uh, any longer that people have a close relationship with the trade and it reminds me of what i understand about the model of uh, freemasonry that that's people sometimes do. what are the differences there is there an is there an overlap or a- I, I i think yes you, um, the livery companies are often people often mistake them to be quasi-masonic i suppose there are some connections but they are they are very different institutions and um the companies are Essentially, I don't think they publicise themselves well enough, really. There's a bit of a mystique about them, and people generally aren't exactly sure what goes on. But, but, but that's not the same as being a secret organisation, by any means? No. Uh, increasingly, they, 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 they really want to let people know what they're doing. I mean, they, I think the last figures I saw were t- 2010, and they, they, the delivery companies gave £42 million to charity. And many of the companies now actually publish an annual report, which is freely available to the public if they want to view it. Certainly the Mercers uh, do. I've seen their one, and the cloth workers, for example. So so, so they're very keen to... Um, it, and they, 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 they want to be known as gentlemen's dining clubs. I mean, there is an air of um, conviviality and fellowship that is important to the company, but much more is, is, is the aspects of charity, of education, and some links or preservation with the trade even when it's disappeared. The companies are ingenious at reinventing a link. Uh, you mentioned fan makers earlier and we have a splendid fan on display here in the courtroom uh, but not many people are having lovely 18th century fans to, to, to uh, air themselves with now. But so, so what they tend to be now are ventilation engineers a different sort of fan of course and we have the Bush Company of Horners well uh, in the past Horn was a cheap plentiful uh, material to make things that you needed plates and cups and so on for everyday use today it's plastic so they tend to be they've got a lot of people in the plastics industry the glass sellers i'm afraid a lot of our glass now is being made in china and and elsewhere in the third world Um, so but today we have a lot of uh, telecommunications people involved in the glass sellers company because of fiber optic cables Um, coach makers and coach harness makers not many people are making coaches and harnesses these days so they have very strong links with the um, automobile industry so the companies are quite ingenious in, in in readapting and having a link another aspect of them of course is 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 strong links with with the armed forces they're great supporters of this and often will have an affiliation with a regiment uh, an RAF squadron or or, or or a ship 
it was very interesting the other week we had uh, the washable company of cooks are connected with hms duncan and the ceo of hms duncan came for his freedom of the city of london and our archives are fantastic in this regard it, it makes it very interesting and rewarding for me this job because i i remembered why uh, it's called hms duncan because of course admiral duncan sunk the dutch fleet at the battle of camperdown in 1797 so i thought it'd be rather nice for the captain of duncan the current hms duncan to see why it's called duncan and we have a wonderful on display a beautiful i wish you could see it again i'll try and paint a picture a wonderful illuminated manuscript uh, full of imagery and pictures and uh, it uh, it was given to him the honorary freedom together with a gold sword in uh, 1797 and we we have this archive um, we used to do two we would do one for the recipient and one for our archive and at the london metropolitan archive we have a fantastic uh, uh, archive of, of, of freedoms from the 18th and 19th century which we can i can display by revolving sometimes not all the time but if we need it or have a connection we can draw it out i can see when you're talking about this sort of stuff that your eyes light up a little i know that you're you're a historian that your degrees in history and i was surprised actually to discover that you're not always in here issuing freedoms in fact you do guided walks and uh, things like that as well and also helping people to find out about their own history through the freedom yes it's it's a fascinating job A, a big chunk of the day actually is conducting the ceremonies um they're on a fairly regular basis and um people often say do you do you not get fed up of doing the same ceremony all the time but it's always very interesting because at the ceremony they have to make a declaration and of course people read the declaration differently you know some people read it very quickly and some people read it very slowly and some people read it very quietly and others read it very loudly and we had a a priest who read it to me in latin once and uh, it's it's a tremendous diversity and of course in the courtroom um, we have a splendid uh, displays uh, of uh, paintings and pictures and artifacts from the freedom Um, and it's wonderful to show people different aspects of the freedom so there is so much to talk about you actually talk about different things and you bounce off people in different ways but apart from conducting the ceremonies um, I've got sort of two other main roles one is as a conduit between the livery and the court of aldermen which is the governing body of the livery if you like Um, the corporation is somewhat unique in that it still has aldermen whereas I think most other local government uh, abolished them in the 1960s um, but there are 25 wards in the City of London and each of them has an alderman or an elder man, a mature man, an experienced man and they have a separate court and from that court are chosen, is chosen the Lord Mayor and also one of the sheriffs. They serve as a sheriff first. It's a sort of a practice, a dummy run prior to taking up the mayoralty and the court of aldermen are very closely connected with the livery one of the privileges of a liveryman is to vote he had, at common hall he can vote in the election of the sheriff and the lord mayor so it's almost the purest form of democracy and uh, from each court is uh, an alderman so uh, now the aldermen are the governing body of the livery and so if they want to change their ordinances or charters or constitution or have any sort of specific queries i'm the conduit they'll come to me first and then uh, it'll be referred up to the alderman so with 108 different companies that that makes for a very interesting aspect of the job and then thirdly Uh, again I find this role very interesting a lot of historical research so I sort of alluded to it with my researches for 
uh, the Welshman Company of Cooks and Admiral Duncan and so on, and we can often do that when we have a VIP uh, or, uh, or a significant figure coming in. We can check something from the archive and uh, bring it out. Pavarotti came for the Freedom some years ago, and it was very... I could say, well, look, Maestro, you, you'll be interested to hear that you're not the first famous Italian to receive the Freedom. Here I have a, a picture of Giuseppe Garibaldi receiving the Freedom in 1864, um, and uh, the French ambassador came for the Freedom. He'd worked very closely with the Remembrancer, our ceremonial officer, in the preparation of the state banquet. And uh, as a sort of a reward, an honour with a small H, it was given to him for the hard work he'd participated in. And of course, I was able to say, Monsieur, you're not the first famous Frenchman. Out here in the waiting room, we have a, a picture of Marshal Foch, who received the freedom at the end of the Great War, given to him by, uh, along with Pershing of the Americans and the less well-known General Diaz of the Italians. Um, so the research is fascinating in that regard in preparation for ceremonies and then secondly we get a lot of emails letters phone calls from from wherever all over the world all over the uk grandfather was a freeman great-grandfather was a freeman uh, why would this be and of course it's uh, we have a, a wonderful uh, database where we can check this and that's uh, all very interesting and do you have a big team of people working under you or is it you doing all this by yourself we're no we're quite a small team whether we 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 we're we're, we're we have, uh, the, the, I'm the clerk, I have a deputy clerk who does a lot of calligraphy actually, the wonderful calligraphy in the, uh, on the copies of Freedom, the parchment copies of Freedom in the Freeman's Declaration book. Uh, she's a qualified calligrapher and the, the script is quite beautiful. We have uh, two court assistants and a beadle, uh, a splendid gentleman in a, uh, a frock coat and a, a top hat looking like something out of uh, the works of Dickens, who is, he's sort of the court usher and he's responsible uh, historically for, for good law and order as well. But today, most people are quite well behaved at their ceremonies, but they're a little nervous perhaps sometimes, so they need him to guide and steer them and tell them to turn off their mobile phones and not to take photos at this stage, but they can do it later. So uh, uh, we're, we're quite a small team, but uh, uh, a very interesting branch of the, the Chamberlain of London's department. I mean... That, in a sense, is a bit confusing, because, I mean, what's the Chamberlain? Well, that, was, that was going to be my next question, but I'm, I'm slightly scared of asking it. <laughs> well, he's, he, today, you and I, most people, the lay people, would call him the Director of Finance, but in the corporation, we've been around for a very long time. I think we're actually older than Parliament. We have certain officers who have very unusual titles, the Comptroller and City Solicitor, the Remembrancer and the Chamberlain. The Chamber is a box in which the money was kept, and therefore he looks after the Lord Mayor's money. So, historically, uh, he, he is... Nowadays, you're just calling the director of finance. But that's interesting why, why he is responsible for this ancient ceremony, which, as I said, stretches back nearly 800 years. Um, the, 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 we do have a ceremonial officer at the corporation who organises the state banquets, uh, the Lord Mayor's show, um, the election of the sheriffs, and all the pomp and ceremony of the city. He's called the Remembrancer. Um, and, uh, but the, the answer to why the Chamberlain historically has looked after it is, uh, is lucre, is money. Because, of course, uh, as I alluded earlier, the fee used to be proportionally much higher in the Middle Ages, and in fact it was a big chunk of the corporation's income. Therefore, the, f the, f the money man looked after it rather than the ceremonial man. So for, for all these centuries, the Chamberlain has had his court, uh, uh, which administers the freedom. Um, and uh, another important role 
is, of course, historically, we would adjudicate in disputes. We actually were a court of law. Uh, We would arbitrate in disputes between masters and apprentices of the various livery companies of the City of London. Generally, of course, it would be the apprentices who caused all the trouble because they were drunk or idle or indolent or staying out all night or absenting themselves from the workplace or shoddy workmanship, even making merry with the master's daughters. But but not exclusively. Sometimes the master might be in trouble because he would uh, be beating the apprentice excessively or he'd be locking him in a garret and feeding him on bread and water or the worst thing he could do really would be not to pass on the skills and the mysteries of the ancient art of being a haberdasher or a skinner or a merchant tailor anyway master or apprentice they'd be up before me or my equivalent uh, and and i had much the same powers uh, 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 as a judge and and you in your introduction rather you were just painting a picture of the courtroom in in fact the the item you described as is more suitably described as a bench it is actually a bench a legal bench and that's where i stand behind to conduct the ceremonies but in those days it was very much they were arbitrating in these disputes now um uh, the powers were a stern word a fine or in the most extreme cases the apprentice will be dispatched to the bridewell lockup for 14 days bread and water um <laughs> A lot of people getting the freedom look rather anxious when I'm telling them this, but they have no reason to worry because, of course, we haven't actually had a trial in here since 1917. Um, a pity. Uh, people often smile, but, 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 you know, for me, it's a bit embarrassing at a party. You know, people say, what do you do? And I say, well, I work in a court, but I haven't had a case for 90 years. <laughs> and, and presumably you uh, do retain, in theory, the powers to uh, sentence people? Well, we do. Very interesting. The, 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 the uh, jurisdiction uh, still exists. It has not been repealed, and although it's dormant, uh, no trial since uh, 1917, it's still there. And, and uh, I remember giving the freedom to a very eminent QC, uh, uh, um, Sherry Booth, and uh, she took a tremendous interest in this. And uh, as an expert on employment and industrial law, her sort of her eyes lit up when I said the jurisdiction was still there. And she said to me, "What, what is your authority for saying this?" And I said, "Well, it's Evans Austin, the law relating to London apprentices, 1890, Chapter Five, Page 107." And uh, uh, I suppose it is quite an unusual uh, bywater of the law. And I, I may be surprised, not surprised that even you, as learned a QC of you, has not quite come across it. But uh, she smiled. She thought it was very funny. I said, "You're very welcome." to see my uh, dusty copy of Evans often if you want and she said no no I'm going to rely on your wise counsel on this issue now from where does this wise counsel spring where, what have you done to get to, to this very unusual role <laughs> well sorry what, what have you done makes it sound as though you've committed an offence of some <laughs> what's your path been to, to arrive here you, you are right I mean it's a very unconventional job uh, almost unique and, and I'm afraid to say I, I ended up in it almost by accident really I, I spent, after university I spent quite a lot of time working in housing management uh, social housing and um, um, housing associations and local government and so on and I ended up on the Barbican uh, estate which is part of the corporation's mighty empire uh, technically a council estate if you like but of course it isn't because uh, it's it's very upmarket and uh, we have the residents who are all well now it's pretty much sold under the right to buy but the corporation maintain the freehold and are still responsible for maintenance of the lifts and the service charges and uh, uh, the roofs and the building maintenance and so on and and it was 
a very interesting job, and but 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 of course they were very articulate uh, residents on the Barbican, judges and lawyers and accountants, and would write some dreadful letters. And as housing manager, you were sometimes a bit pig in the middle between the court between the two. And so I was getting a bit disheartened. And the corporation is a funny beast, older than Parliament, uh, like a London borough, but it isn't. Uh, it, it has you know the old Bailey, it has its own police force, it has the mayoralty, it has uh, swathes of in the nineteenth century great concern at the expansion of London, the urbanisation. So the corporation got by it by buying great swathes of woodland, Epping Forest, Burnham Beaches, Kent and Surrey Commons, and preserved, preserved it as a green lung for Londoners. So we're like a local authority and we're not. Um, and um, we used to have, before the internet, there were these blue sheets that came around, internal job vacancies, and it would be something like a surveyor or a, an engineer or a refuse lorry driver or something, you know, normal things in local government. And then all of a sudden there'd be verder at Epping Forest or bridge master at tower bridge um or assistant clerk of the chamberlain's court um admitting people to the freedom liaising with the liveries and um historical research and i'd done history at, at london university and always been interested and i applied and got on very well with my predecessor as clerk and um we used to and got appointed and that was it so i literally fell into it and we had a my mentor really was um a, a lovely lady called, called caroline arnold who, who used to work here for many years and she was very sage and she had uh, learned all the the mystique and the uh, of this uh, extraordinary job and, and she, she was very kind to me and sort of passed on a lot of it on to me and uh, you, you sort of pick it up over the years as they evolve yeah is there still do you feel that there's still lots more to learn or does there come a point where you sort of know everything about this defined area <laughs> you, no you, look you're you're always uh, certain questions get asked me a lot so you know the sheep and so on i'm always being asked about that yes i should wait, say we're surrounded by sheep every room you go into around here there's a sheep <laughs> yes i better i'll tell you about the sheep in a minute but but um the other day you you, you never know you never know i i had to do Part of my role, I, I, I had a party from Colf School, which is associated with the Leather Sellers Company, um, a very old and, and, and uh, established company. And usually uh, Colf's, um, Colf was a, a leather seller in the 18th century, I think, who became a trustee of uh, the, uh, the leather sellers, became a trustee of the will and, and uh, set up this, or had strong links with this school, which is in Lewisham. And they always come up to the city, their city day, and they visit the hall. Now, the, the, the leather sellers own St. Helen's Place off Bishopsgate, a whole avenue, a whole road, and it's all being redeveloped at the moment. Uh, a new, new office and commercial premises will go up and a new hall will be built on the site. I think it's the sixth or seventh hall on that site since the 15th century so extraordinary continuity what the, the, but the key thing is they've still owned that land right since then you know different buildings have been on it so they unfortunately they couldn't go and see the hall so um a past master who uh, I, i'm a, a previous clerk of one of the livery companies who's uh, a good friend of mine said oh murray look you you can you show them round you show them guild hall so so i had a party i thought they were going to be 16 year olds but they turned out to be 12 year olds but they were very inquisitive and i i gave them a guided tour if you like of the guild hall the great splendid 15th century guild hall and and at the end of it i, I the city has a pair of legendary giants who shrouded in mystery gog and magog who, who came from ancient troy to save to save uh, the ancient britons from some 
dreadful fate. And um, one of the kids put their hand up and said, oh, uh, Mr. Craig, he said, uh, how did Gog and Magog get from ancient Troy to London? And it's not a question I heard before. So in some desperation, I said, well, I think they got the 169 bus and then they changed at King's Cross. So the, the moral of the tale is you think you know everything, but there's always there's always something else to be learned. <laughs> uh, there's lots of arcane uh, bits and pieces we could talk about here. We, we can't not talk about the sheep, I suppose. <laughs> Yes, I'd be a very rich man indeed for uh, for everyone or wife or friend or member uh, father who's actually at this ceremony who suddenly says, can he take his sheep over the bridge or can she take her sheep over the bridge? I'd be a very rich man indeed if I had a £10 for that, but every time it's asked. But... Um, no, of course, you can't take sheep over London Bridge, London Bridge, note, anymore, um, because, of course, the police take a dim view of it these days with the buses and taxis and commuters and Boris bicycles and so on. It'd cause absolute traffic chaos. Um, we laugh about it, but, of course, historically, and there we go back to the Middle Ages again, the privilege was not so much you could take the sheep over the bridge, but it was that you, you didn't pay the toll. And, of course, in those days, you were heading off to Smithfield Meat Market to sell uh, the uh, sheep for a good profit, and not to pay the toll would enhance your profit margin. You could bring cattle, pigs, goats, hens, ducks, geese, livestock, any livestock, and not pay. But in the Middle Ages, the bedrock of the English economy was the sheep, uh, was, the cloth, was the cloth trade, the wool trade. So it's said that the sheep went over the bridge in much larger numbers than all the other animals put together. They actually paid for the building, maintenance, and repair of the bridge over the centuries. So sheep over the bridge, but, but not anymore. <laughs> so we're back to that element of, uh, I suppose, kind of protectionism or something like that that got uh, some of these ideas started but seem not to be happening now. They seem not to be the reasons for the continuation of these companies. I suppose my final question would have to be how you suppose it, it can be that some of these things that we're hearing about, these the sort of suspended rights that you've mentioned in terms of your, the, the rights that you have, the, the rights of the, the free man to do this or that, the nomenclature, the, the roles of the, for example, the ornament, how is it that these things have been preserved in this kind of strange suspended state where they're not still doing what they were doing, they're, they're sort of not being repealed, but then what, what, what is so special about the City of London that that's been allowed to happen? Well, uh, the, the City of London is often called unique, and, and, and I think this job certainly is, and I think part of it is, what I've been trying to explain is, is 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 the foundations of it you know it, it, these notions all sound rather romantic or perhaps strange but the, the bedrock is there you know just as i've just explained about the business of the sheep and the right to trade how you would literally fold up your little bit of parchment uh, and we still give you give the recipients a little a little pouch it says city of london copy of freedom and you would literally fold it up put it in there and carry it about your person as i say like a passport or a driving license so this it's it's wonderful how it still exists and then but it has adapted and it changes it's it's symbolic it's a piece of history and it's it's marvelous that people still feel connected to it and still want to 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 have receive the freedom and um but but what what is it that's i guess what i'm asking what's special about the city of london that's allowed some of these roles and positions and ideas to be rather than just somebody come in and say okay well this this is all a bit archaic we're going to sweep this away and replace it with something more up to date well i i suppose uh, <laughs> i don't know it's a really difficult question i suppose the city it's not impervious to change because of course recently uh, we we have had uh, 
uh, reform of the franchise where it's been widened to make sh- uh, enable more people to vote so there is that degree of flexibility and and, and of course the city moves ahead and and, and, and the role of uh, supporting the, the, the mayoralty supporting the financial city banging the drum which is difficult in these these rather troubled times um, but uh, it, you know it, it does it does it just still you know it's, it's a blending of I suppose tradition with modernity and I, I think the city achieves that uh, particularly well. We should mention, of course, that we are sitting at this large conference table and we have sporting heroes from the city, including, I was delighted to see the, the City of London Police Forces tug-of-war team back it well. I'm, I'm going to have a guess. Don't, don't tell me. I'll see if I can guess from the hats. We've got straw boaters. We've got what looks like policemen with sashes on. This fella here, I'd say 1910. Yeah, well, you're nearly there. And of course, um, we're, we're now having the third Olympic Games uh, in London, and the first one was in 1908, and uh, that's the tug-of-war team from 1908, which was triumphant. And uh, as you rightly say, they're all freemen because they, uh, they were actually City of London policemen. It's absolutely extraordinary, and uh, they're quite a beefy, brawny lot, and they won the gold medal. Now, in 1912, the British Olympic Association, rather unwisely, uh, didn't ask the City of London police to partake, but I think a, a mixture of uh, uh, policemen from Lancashire and the Metropolitan Police, and they, they were well adrift. Uh, so happily in 1920, we reverted to the City of London Police Force forming the team. And again, I have a nice photo here on the table, and you wouldn't want to mix with them. They look a right <laughs> bunch of uh, uh, bruisers. And in fact, the uh, one fellow in the back row was actually the British heavyweight boxing champion, uh, Alexander Sewell, a Scotsman. So, And Sergeant Ernest Vaughan, he of the luxuriant moustache, was actually given the honour of being the flag bearer at the opening ceremony at Antwerp in 1920. And, and uh, Danny Ball had nothing on this lot. You can see in those days they all looked like extras out of chariots of fire. So British chaps in blazers and boaters and uh, carrying the, uh, the... We defeated the Americans and the Americans complained. They said it's not fair. They've all got hobnail boots on. Now, of course, they would do, wouldn't they? Because they're all coppers. But uh, our plucky chaps took off their boots, put on some plimsolls and they'd excuse the pun, they out-yanked the Yanks again and uh, <laughs> duly uh, got the gold medal back. Uh, in fact, we are the reigning, Britain is the reigning tug-of-war uh, gold medal uh, champion because we haven't had one since, which seems a, a shame to me because uh, we have uh, synchronised swimming and, and beach volleyball, so why can't we have a tug-of-war back? And uh, Yes, we could put that obesity epidemic to good use, couldn't we? <laughs> well, uh, they are. Some of these chaps are very big. I don't know if they'd fit in their uniform. but They look a lot bigger than your modern-day rugby player, to be honest. I certainly wouldn't want to cross those. And, and by contrast, next to them, uh, in a, another photo display, we have someone of altogether different stature. Well, it, we, 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 we had a bit of magic, actually, because uh, um, uh, J.K. Rowling appeared uh, for the freedom of the City of London. The Lord Mayor was quite an enthusiast for Harry Potter and admiring her, her almost getting the freedom for services to literature, if you like. And uh, unusually, the uh, the court uh, was convened over in the splendours of the mansion house. And uh, I said to her, you'll feel at home here, Joe, because you're surrounded by a lot of people wearing robes. And she said, yes, it is uh, positively Hogwartian. So, uh, <laughs> But uh, I think uh, she, she, she read her declaration splendidly, and it was a, a very enjoyable occasion. It, it's, it's very nice to... Uh, you, you do get to meet some very interesting people getting the freedom. Uh, people often say to me, what was the best... Uh, freedom uh, declaration you heard and uh, last year Dame Judi Dench came along and, and really was a tour de force she was a mixture of 
um, Desdemona, Lady Bracknell, Lady Macbeth, uh, the Queen Victoria, M all roll into one. It was a, a tour de force. And Colin Firth came as well, and, and uh, we were a bit anxious as to how he would read the Declaration, because, of course, if he read it in the style of King George VI in that marvellous film, The King's Speech, we might have been there for some considerable time, yeah. <laughs> There we go, that was Murray Craig, and huge thanks to Andrew Buckingham for facilitating that interview. Answers to quiz questions. The Marchioness tragedy took place under Cannon Street Railway Bridge. The character we were looking for, the A.A. Milne character, uh, well, of, of course it was Christopher Robin Milne, which was the name of both the son and the character. There's surely only one football programme it could have been. Yep, it was Match of the Day, and uh, you may be interested, Match of the Day was aired at 6.30pm on BBC Two, and at that time that meant that it was generally only available to London viewers, as the channel didn't become available outside the capital until some time later. The question about 1940, what first took place in London on uh, that date and uh, at night? Well, it was the first all-night bombing raid on London during the Second World War, paving the way for tit-for-tat retaliation and, of course, the Blitz. And finally, 1931, Ramsay MacDonald resigned the Labour government, uh, which was replaced by, yes, the National Government. How did you get on? We're going to be delving into London's history quite literally and even further back than we have done in today's programme next week as we pay a visit to the artefacts excavated by the team of archaeologists working with Crossrail. I hope you can join me for that. Until then, stay dry. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my interviewee, Murray Craig. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Rachel Holdsworth, Zoe Craig, no relation by the way, and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. 
That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 